Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 through 13, this sixth of the seven letters from Jesus to the churches, and this one this morning to Philadelphia, weak, faithful, and yet secure. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Well, Father, we do confess that we are weak. We do confess that we need your grace even to hear your word rightly, to believe it, to trust it. We ask that you would help us to remember this and to stand firm, to recall it to mind as those who are weak and sinful, that we would remember your word that you have spoken from old, that you are God and that there is no other. You are God and there are none like you, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying that your counsel shall stand. You will accomplish all that you purpose. You call a bird of prey from the east, the man of your counsel from a far country. You have spoken and you will bring it to pass. You have purposed and you will do it. And so we pray that you would give us great confidence in you and in your word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, change us, root our confidence deeply in you and in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I was reading an article recently about a man named Al Corby who identifies himself, this is his title, wait for it, as a professional headline vision mission, physical security and life safety innovator. <laughs> his mission in life is to help people feel safe and secure in whatever homes, whatever buildings, whatever communities they live in. And he himself, according to Forbes magazine, has built one of his several homes in the hills of Hollywood to be I quote, a fortress of protection. In order to protect against California earthquakes, he actually has steel pillars 
under his home that go 30 feet down into the rock. The article says his home is locked down so tightly that sensors sound an alarm when a trespasser is over half a mile away from the property. They have a panic room in the middle of the, pro- of the home that is 2,500 square feet, a full home, so that, I quote, the Corby family rests easily at night in their protective fortress. Now, that may sound ridiculous to you, or it may sound awesome, but it certainly represents a common and very human approach to security, namely physical defenses, physical strength, earthly fortification is the key to being and feeling secure in this world. And I fear that as a church, we can fall into the same sort of foolish and delusional sentiment. I know I do. We can seek our security as Christians in earthly defenses by either trying to create a culture and society that values and esteems us, or by establishing laws or people or resources that will protect us from the danger certain to come when that culture does not esteem us or value us. Cultural strength, material strength, we wrongly assume equals security. A government that values and esteems Christians, we wrongly assume, provides security. Power, we wrongly assume, brings security. And these words of Jesus Christ to his church at Philadelphia is going to teach otherwise. In fact, Jesus is going to define for us what real security is, where real security comes from, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves living in. He's going to show us the way to real peace, real rest. And he's not going to rest until we rest fully in him and only him. Notice verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That this message comes from Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who is exalted and entirely set apart by his righteousness. These words come from the true one, the one who is the truth, the one who speaks the truth, the one whose words are perfectly trustworthy. They come from the one who holds the key of David, that is, the one who decides the fate of his people, who opens the door of deliverance into the kingdom of God and the presence of God for his elect, and he shuts the very same door upon his enemies. And when we're reading the book of Revelation, I think we need to often ask, okay, where does that come from in the Old Testament? Because Revelation is often quoting or giving allusions to passages of the Old Testament. And so here, this reference to the key of David is a reference to Isaiah 22, where the Lord is reproving the city of Jerusalem for celebrating and feasting on a day that should be filled with weeping and with mourning and with repentance. Because God is judging Israel at this time, judging Jerusalem by bringing all these enemy armies around the nation to judge them for their idolatry. And rather than grieve their sin, rather than hope in God, they're going to fortify their city, they're going to redirect the water, they're going to hunker down, 
And then they're going to say, Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And chief among the culprits was a man named Shebna, who was a sort of prime minister of state under Ahaz and then under King Hezekiah. And he was both powerful in the nation, but also wicked and proud. And so he distracted the people of God constantly from hoping in God to either give up or quit or be defeatist or trust in their fortifications or even trust in other enemy armies to help them. So the Lord is going to send Isaiah in Isaiah 22 to specifically call out Shebna, to confront his sin, to tell him that he's about to be replaced by a man named Eliakim, who is a faithful, humble priest. And of Eliakim, listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So even then, God is saying to Israel, yeah, the wicked aren't going to decide who gets in and who gets out. The proud aren't going to decide. The world isn't going to decide who is delivered, who's received into the kingdom, who is kept out. No, the servant of my choice, the humble servant of my choosing and design, that's who will decide. And so here, even in this letter to Philadelphia in chapter 3 of Revelation, it's revealing that Eliakim is this type of Jesus Christ, the one who really controls who enters the presence of God, who's cast out. That's why you can say in verse 8 there, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And the context is a reference to the door into the kingdom of God, the door into everlasting life in the presence of God, where Jesus is saying to the church, I've opened this before you. Nobody can shut it. No one but Jesus Christ controls your fate. No one but Jesus Christ controls your fate. No one but Jesus Christ controls your fate. And if you're in Christ, do you believe that? Does that affect the way you interpret your world? Does that affect the way you deal with hardship? Does that affect the way you think and feel and live in a world that's doing whatever the world is doing, in a body that's doing whatever the body is doing, in circumstances that are doing whatever they're doing. The Lord wants those kinds of words to deeply affect us. So he's setting the stage for this letter to Philadelphia very carefully. Notice in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not a smurf talking or some mere mortal or a delusional windbag. No, this is God the Son speaking by His Spirit through the Apostle John to His representative at the Philadelphian church for the encouragement of that church and for all of us to hear and believe and be changed by. The Holy One is speaking to us. The true one is speaking to us. The one who decides the eternal fate of every soul is speaking to us. And he's speaking to us about, number one, the reality of our weakness. That's going to be our first point. If you have a service guide with you, there should be these points in your notes. Number two, the beauty of our faithfulness. 
And number three, the basis for our security. The reality of our weakness. Look at verse 8. I know that you have but little power. In other words, the Christians in Philadelphia were not in a position of cultural strength, but cultural weakness. They were few in number. They did not occupy the positions of power, but positions of vulnerability. And the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim, he knows this. He sees this. The one who rules the universe, who sustains it with his words, who holds the breath of every creature in his hands, who holds the stars in their place, who raises kings and sets them down, who lifts up empires and brings them to nothing. He knows they're weak. He determined that they would have little power. And he doesn't have a problem with it at all. He doesn't think they have a reason to be afraid or to be angry. The Lord's not being callous to their condition. Listen to how tenderly he says it. I know that you have but little power. It's just he thinks they're okay in the hands of their enemies because they're ultimately in his hands. Just as Joseph was in his hands while in prison in Egypt. Just as Moses was in his hands while lying in a basket floating among the reeds of the Nile. Which is not a safe place to put a baby. But he's in his hands. Just as Deborah was in his hands under the oppression of King Jabin, king of Canaan. Just as Ruth was in his hands when widowed and destitute. Just as David was in his hands while running from Saul and hiding in caves. Just as Daniel was in his hands in a lion's den. Just as Jesus was in the hands of his father when he went to the cross. When he died in our place when he was laid in a tomb, when he raised on the third day, when he ascended and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. All that time in the hands of his Father. Just as the Apostle Paul was in his hands when he said, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Hebrews 11, and what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Daniel, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, which women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In other words, we should not expend our energy trying to create a world that we can fit neatly inside or be angry when we don't. You don't want to create a world that is worthy of you when God's designed the world to not be worthy of you, for you to be distinct. Sometimes the Lord grants us earthly power. Often he doesn't. And are we prepared for that? We prepared for that as a church, 
as followers of Jesus Christ to have but little power and yet be full of confidence, full of hope. Feel free to vote in elections. Feel free to run for elections. Feel free to assume whatever position of leadership the Lord grants you. Feel free to exercise positions of authority entrusted to you. Feel free to be glad when those who seem to be righteous seem to be governing wisely. But brothers and sisters, don't think for one millisecond that your security depends on that happening. Remember that your faith, your hope, your peace, your joy, your confidence as a Christian has nothing whatsoever to do with whatever humans occupy whatever positions of authority in whatever city, state, or country you're living in. Our city and country, as we're going to see in a little bit, comes from above. It's otherworldly. And so the Lord has not called us to grow in societal power, but to grow in spiritual faithfulness, which is where he goes next, just to call attention to the beauty of faithfulness in his people. Verse 8, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Oh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would speak that way to us, speak that way about us, not that we're of great power in the eyes of the world, but that we're of great faithfulness in the eyes of our Savior. Not that we climbed to the top of the food chain, but that we learned how to be content at the bottom. Though the Christians of Philadelphia were scorned and persecuted by the world, by the Jews in their city in particular, they didn't sort of trim their witness to fit the culture. They didn't take up arms to fight the culture. They just persisted in living as followers of Jesus Christ. That's going to be expressed here in two ways. Firstly, kept God's word, kept the word of Christ. And no matter how it was received by the culture, they just kept believing the gospel and preaching the gospel. No matter how unsavory it was to the world, they just kept honoring and obeying the word of God. No matter how ugly to the society around them, they just kept holding to the truth about God, the truth about creation, about sin, about salvation, about marriage, about divorce, about sexuality, about gender, about the dignity of all people made in the image of God, about true repentance, about true worship, about what real faith is. Just kept holding to what God had said. Because the Lord really doesn't care if you keep your guns, but he does care that you keep his word. The Lord may not help you hold fast to your job, but he will help you hold fast to his promises. Because suffering is hard. And everything around us is moving constantly. But he's giving us something that doesn't move, doesn't change, just as he doesn't move and doesn't change. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of our God stands forever. That's why we ought to have 10 times more time here than surfing the internet. Spend 50 times more time in this book than Fox News or whatever blogs you want to read. Because these words won't change. These words won't pass away. 
They won't fade. They kept his word. They also did not deny his name, though costly they kept burying the name Jesus. You know, imagine burying the last name Trump in downtown Seattle or the last name Biden in rural Arkansas. There's going to be scorn. There's going to be mistreatment or whatever name you can imagine, whatever part of the world that is hated, that is despised, that is put down. Well, to bear the name Jesus in the first century could get you killed. To bear the name Jesus in many places in the world today could get you killed. And it would have been very tempting for the Philadelphians just to deny it, to deny they belong to him. Remember Matthew 26, 16, where this servant girl is going to go to Peter. Hey, you're with him, right? You're a Galilean. You're with that Jesus. And three times Peter's going to deny it. I don't know him. Don't know what you're talking about. Not associated with him. Then God's going to convict him. And he's going to weep. And he's going to repent. And Jesus is going to restore him. Well, here the Philadelphians are under the same pressure. Just deny knowing him, it'll be so much easier. Just don't bring him up in conversation, it'll be so much easier. It'll be safer. It'll make you more secure in this world. Well, the Philadelphians had learned, perhaps from Peter and other places, to not deny his name. They clung to the righteousness of his name as their hope for salvation. They clung to the preeminence of his name as their boast among people. They weren't ashamed of it. They clung to the power of his name as their confidence. They clung to the refuge of his name as their sense of security. They came to realize, just as the Lord wants us to realize, that our whole basis for security is found in the truth that we bear his name. Which brings us to our third point, the basis for our security. Upon who and upon what do you base your security? That's the question I think this passage puts before us. Where do you run for refuge? What settles your heart? What alarms it? What gives you a sense of real peace? Is it human power? Is it physical health? Is it retirement funds? Is it airbags? Is it conservative education? Is it conservative government? Is it democracy? Is it military? Or is it your adoption as a child of God? Is it your sealing with the Holy Spirit? Or is it Jesus Christ and his promises? Because what sanctification is, it's just this long process of being less secure in the temporary circumstances of this passing world and more secure in Christ and his word. That's what sanctification is. And the Lord is happy to pull out every rug we ever stand on that's not him. Every refuge we ever go to that's not him. Every sense of security we ever go after that he knows isn't really secure. That's where the words of Jesus Christ to Philadelphia is going to lead them. Four promises that they can bank on. Four promises that we can bank on. Promise one, vindication. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
At this time, there were Jewish synagogues in almost every major city spread throughout the Roman Empire, and they claimed to love and serve Yahweh. They claimed to believe the Old Testament scriptures, and yet they rejected Jesus as the Christ. They rejected followers of Jesus Christ. They saw them as this rogue sect that needed to be destroyed. And Jesus here calls them the synagogue of Satan, who claimed to be Israel but weren't, claimed to represent God, but instead they represent the devil. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, Romans 9. So this church, this little church, was surrounded by Jews who claimed to love God and claimed that the Christians didn't, claimed that God loved them and that God hated Christians. And so they felt justified persecuting them, attacking them. John 16, 2, where Jesus anticipated this day, listen to what he says to his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's what's coming for you, all those who follow me. The people will, who kill you will think they're offering service to God. So what's happening in Philadelphia, he's saying this was to be expected. And yet Jesus is careful to point out in John 16, 3, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They claim to be right and claim that you're wrong. They claim to be sane and make you out to be insane. They claim to have the truth to represent the Lord, to be on the right side of history. And yet the true one says they lie. They deceive themselves. They deceive others. And the day will come when all will rise and stand before the Lord and he will cause everyone to see the truth. Notice what he says. Jesus will make them come and bow down before your feet because you are the bride of Christ, because you're now royalty of heaven, because you will reign with him. Some of you may know the classic tale of Cinderella. Mistreated, persecuted by her stepsisters, by her stepmother for all those years. And then she's taken to be the bride of the prince the one who would someday be king. And in the end, all those who persecuted her were made to come and bow down. Why? Because of who she was married to. She was no longer a pauper, but a princess. She was no longer underneath, but on top. Because the, the king had exalted her to that place. And here we're getting this sense, even from Jesus, that day is coming for my bride. When all those who persecute her, all those who demean her, all those who hate her, put her to death, will stand before me and will see, and I will cause them to see that I have loved them. Have you learned how much he loves you? That's a question. The day is coming where he will show the whole world how much he loves you. Will that be the first time for you? Are you gaining a sense even now of how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how much he guards you, protects you, sustains you? This is, again, where we can't look to our circumstances as the evidence. We can't look to, okay, if I'm being treated well, if everything's going well in my life, then Jesus must love me. If it's going badly, he must hate me. 
No, all we have is his word. And he says, I love you. I've given my life for you. I've purchased you with my blood. I've taken you to myself. I've filled you with my spirit. I've given you my promises. And the day is coming where I will show the whole world, the whole universe, how much I've loved you. Can you wait for that day? Or must you have your vindication now? Can we, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt us? Pride for a Christian, for us, it's essentially premature self-exaltation. We're trying to rise to the top before the time. What he's called us to is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, which means the, the hand of God that's moving circumstances in a way that is uncomfortable, knowing he will exalt us at the proper time. He will vindicate us at the proper time. Jesus promises it and says to the church of Philadelphia, bank on this. Put your hope in this. Find security in this fact. Promise two, preservation. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Once more, Jesus is going to point out that they've kept his word, but here he's going to become more specific. They kept his word about patient endurance, about hupomone, which is a Greek word for being still under weight, resting under burden. Four times that word is going to appear in the first three chapters of Revelation. So here the saints of Philadelphia were keeping the word of Christ by remaining still in his hands under the weight of persecution. They've kept his word, he says, about patient endurance, which is probably a reference to Luke 21, where Jesus is going to say to his disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, hupomone, you will gain your lives. That's the word they're keeping. That's the word they're clinging to. Jesus promised that not a hair of our heads will perish. Jesus promised that he will raise us on the last day. Jesus promised that we're going to be hated for his name's sake. So their endurance isn't based upon their own grit, their own ability, but upon this promise from Christ that not a hair of your head is going to perish, which is not a reference to avoiding death, but a reference to the fact that even in death, the Lord will preserve us. Even through death, the Lord will keep us. That if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ for your salvation, then you'll never perish. You'll have everlasting life. Though you'll die, you'll be raised. Though your body will go in the ground, Jesus will raise it and glorify it. And the idea that not a single of your hairs, which is just metaphoric, a way of saying not one ounce of your being will be lost. Not one grain of your body will not be glorified. Though it could be burned to ash and scattered to the wind, his word will call every bit of ash back and raise it and glorify it. And you'll stand before him without a part of you, a single part of you perishing. Only your sin put to death. 
every other part of you more alive than it has ever been. Preservation. If we, by faith, trust in the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, for our forgiveness, for righteousness before God, then we will be kept from the wrath of God that is certain to come. That's what he's saying. Because there are trials of this life, but then there is here what is called the hour of trial, the judgment of God that is soon to come upon the whole world. So there's all kinds of opinions about what this hour of trial is. I think that phrase, the whole world, is literal. And therefore, it's referring to these judgments that are about to come in Revelation 6 to 11. All these bowls, all these seals, all these trumpets that are going to come. All of it leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of it leading up to the judgment of Christ upon his enemies. Listen to Re- Revelation 11:18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's the trial that's coming. The wrath of God that's coming on all his enemies. The reward of God that's coming for all his saints. For all his people. These events will, notice, try those who dwell on the earth. The try is a word for the the smelting of metal, the trying and testing of metal in a furnace. And here it's not so much to sanctify and purify it, but to destroy it, to destroy the destroyers on the earth. As metal is melted in a furnace, this hour of trial will judge unbelievers. And though we will physically suffer, we will be spiritually preserved. Which again leads us to the question, upon whom do you base your security for that day? What are you trusting in? A bunker in the Ozarks ain't going to help you. That house in the hills of Hollywood with 30 feet steel going down into the rock and a safe room in the middle will be laughable on that day. Remember what Revelation 6.16 says where the rich, the powerful, all the kings of the earth are going to cry this out. Fall on us, mountains. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, those in Christ will stand. Security in any other person in any other name, will fail. And he's coming very soon, which leads to the third promise, consummation. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The circumstances in which we live, though they will certainly get worse, will not last This age will draw to an end. All the promises of God will be fulfilled and consummated in the second coming of Jesus Christ. When? Soon. When will that year be? Soon. What timeline should we expect? Soon. When will we meet him in the air? 
soon. When should we prepare? Now. When should we take this seriously? Right now. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast your confession of faith, knowing that if Jesus is yours, you can never lose him. So hold fast to him. That's some of the assurance. Hold fast to him. Why? Because he'll never let you go. So hold fast. It's like he's got your hand right here. He says, hold fast to him. Well, what if I slip? Well, he's still got you. So hold fast. That's the reason to hold fast. Because he'll never drop you. Because he will preserve us, let us persevere. Hold fast so that no one seizes, says, your crown. Revelation 2.10 calls this the crown of life. The victor's crown. And someday it will turn into a ruler's crown. According to Revelation 26, all who belong to Christ will reign with him. So if you finish the race with him, and all who are in him will finish the race, you receive this victor's crown. And then on the last day, that will become a ruler's crown. You'll reign with him forever. If you belong to Christ, you will reign with Christ. Just as he said, the meek will inherit the earth. When? Soon. When should I get ready? Now. When is the day to repent? Right now. And if you're sitting here and you don't trust Jesus, you don't know Jesus, your hope isn't in Jesus, your confidence isn't in Jesus, today is the day to repent and trust him. Today is the day to put your hope in him. Because tonight may be the night that he comes back. Tonight may be the night that he shows up on the clouds. And then it's too late. And so make sure to interpret trials, suffering, elections, cultural trends, changing times, pandemics, rumors of wars, everything else in all of creation under the light of these words of Scripture. Everything that ever happens to you, you're meant to interpret through the light of these words of Scripture. Everything you ever feel, everything that ever gets put on you, everything that God is doing in our world, we're meant to interpret through these words of Scripture so that nobody in all the world should be more at peace than the people of Jesus Christ. No people in all the world should be more at rest than his church because we know what he's promised. We know what he's going to do. And no people should be more at the work of evangelism at the work of proclaiming Christ, at the work of calling everyone to prepare for this day than his church. Because all his promises will be consummated. Make sure your false hopes are dashed now and not later. That's some of why this passage is here. Whatever false hopes you have in some created thing, whatever false hopes you have in whatever created person, Whatever false hopes you have and whatever earthly security, dash those now. You don't want to dash them later. So that your security rests in Christ now, not later, which leads to our fourth and final promise, identification. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The one who conquers, as we've already seen, is not the one who's the strongest in their ability, but the one whose hope is fixed to Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who conquers. The people of Israel conquered Goliath because David conquered Goliath. Not because they beat him, but because the one who represented him beat him. In the same way that we conquer because our king conquers. If you're going to battle with this great king and he's going to defeat all the enemies, but you're in the army, you win. But not because you defeated anything, but because the one who represents you defeated everything. So to the one who conquers, the one who is in him, the one who remains attached to him, who's in his army, who takes on his name, conquers. That one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. They're meant to contrast this to the synagogue of Satan that they were kicked out of. The synagogues all over the world that, that Christians were kicked out of. God's like, no, there's a, there's a real temple, a true temple, a heavenly temple, an everlasting temple. You'll be made a pillar there. You'll never get cast out. You'll never be rejected. Jesus promises to establish his people in the true temple. That's your security. Jesus will write the name of his father on you. That's a great tattoo right there. He will tattoo the name of his father on you. He will write the name of the heavenly city. It's his father's city on you, which notice comes down from my God out of heaven. It's not here. It's there. It's coming. And he's going to give you a passport for that city, a driver's license for that city, identification for that city. You'll be a citizen of that city, his father's city. And then he will write his own name on you, his new name on you. That is some serious identification. That in Revelation 21, verse 2, when this city of God is going to be coming down from heaven, city of Babylon has fallen by then. It's destroyed. And this new city is coming down. How are you going to get in? By having the name of Jesus. By bearing the name of that city. How do you get that name? Jesus writes it on you. Jesus has the key of David, verse 7, deciding who gains entrance into his kingdom, who is excluded. He marks those who gain entrance with this very special identification, the name of his father, the name of his city, and even his own new name, which I think is a reference to Revelation 19. This name that nobody knows right now. Revelation 19.11, the Apostle John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So he's called faithful and true. He's called the Word of God. We know those names. But then he has another name that nobody knows. Another name that I believe is going to be revealed when he's fully revealed in all his glory on the last day. And he will write that name on you. He will give that name to you. 
What a gift. Not the name of death that we read of in Revelation 6.8. Not the name of Wormwood in Revelation 8.11. Not the name of Abaddon in Revelation 9.11. Not the blasphemous names of the beast in Revelation 13.1. Not the mysterious name of Babylon, the mother of the earth's abominations in Revelation 17.5. But the precious new name of your Redeemer, your heavenly husband, your eternal Savior, the one who has the name above every name, the name that every knee will bow to, he'll give you that name. And when that moment comes, who cares what society you belong to on earth when you think about it? Who cares what earthly city you come from or live in? Who cares about earthly citizenships and privileges? Who cares about temporary physical resources? Every ounce of security we seek and depend upon during our days on earth should be rooted in the unassailable truth that we bear his name. Though of little power, the Lord feeds and delights in our faithfulness. That's what he's trying to cultivate in his church. Not cultural power, but spiritual power. Not cultural strength, but spiritual strength to keep his word, to not deny his name. And why not? Well, because we dwell secure as the children of God, because he loves us. And the day is coming when he's going to show the world how much he loves us. And to imagine that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, and everybody's going to look and say, wow, he really did love them, that he would give his life for them, that he would redeem them, that he would forgive them, that he would fill them with his spirit, that he would conform them to his image, that he would give them the kingdom, that they would inherit the earth, that they would reign with him, they would be given the city, that they would take on his name. That's what Jesus wanted his church in Philadelphia to plant deep in their hearts. That's what he wants us to plant deep in our hearts so that our security would rest in no one but him, in nobody's words but his words, until that very day when he shows up, and we will be exceedingly glad that we have his name. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed turn every heart in this room to you, that you would soften every heart in this room beneath your word, that you would bring every heart to repentance, every heart to deeper faith, every heart to deeper trust and to deeper hope in you, that you would fix every eye upon Jesus, that you would build every sense of confidence in his life, his death, his resurrection, that you would fix our hope to that day when he will most certainly come, and it will be soon. So that as the world swirls around us, as the storms rage and toss to and fro, our anchor would be secure because our anchor is him. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's only right that we respond to his word in worship. And so let's stand together and sing, Arise.